log, James, I should say, he, he didn't write it himself, he, he wrote it to others, of course. Um, so uh, we're going to read from uh, James' epistle uh, in chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 13. I want to look with you this evening at the, at the issue and the subject of confession of sin. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would rain, eh, that it would not rain rather, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'll take the next slide. Thanks. Sin is deadly. Death exists in our world as the ultimate consequence of our rebellion against God. But the physical death with which we are so familiar and which causes us so much heartbreak and grief is really only a visual reminder of a much deeper problem. It's a, an object lesson, if you will, of the death inside our lives in relation to God. So when you stand with a broken heart at an open grave, it's not simply the loss of a human life that you mourn. It's that sense of connection with the deep sense of distance between you and God, that realisation that, that you yourself are dead. Now, our culture doesn't express these things at that time and in these ways, but that, according to the Bible, is the reality of the matter. So what we are dealing with here in James 5 isn't a casual matter. Christianity is completely bound up with the notion of sin. Indeed, the Bible tells us God's story, God's mission to rescue rebels out of sin and guilt and to set them free. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the central message in the Bible of how God has conquered sin and death through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So unless we seriously consider the weight of sin, we can never properly understand the goodness, the glory and the grace and mercy of God's salvation. Neither can we respond to it appropriately in our own lives with repentance, faith and worship. 
This is why Christians historically have spent so much time speaking about sin. Some would say unhealthily obsessed with sin. It's also why the evil one would rather we did anything at all than speak about sin. He, of course, in all of his powers, would rather that we kept sin secret. Now, our secrets are usually secrets for good reason. Our secrets tend to be the worst of ourselves. Our secrets are foibles, faults and deep hidden follies that have pierced the hearts of others and far worse, the heart of God himself. Often, would it not be true to say that our greatest secrets conceal our gravest sins? As Christians then, what are we to do with our gravest sins? Our greatest secrets? Well, we are to do with them exactly what sin itself doesn't want done with it. We are to expose them. We are to tell them. We are to talk about them. We are to talk about them to God. We are to confess them to him. <coughs> to confess something is really to say with. That's the root cause of, uh, or, or, or the root meaning of the word confess. It means to say with or to say along with. To agree with God about our sin. So when we confess our sin, we say the same things about our sin as God says. And we agree with him about what our sin deserves. And as we do that, as we verbalise that, as we confess our sins, we repent of them, we leave them to one side and turn away from them. We abandon them. We turn from our sin to God and we receive forgiveness. So we read in John's epistle in the first uh, epistle, verse 1, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 9, we read these famous words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. So let's just run that again. If we confess our sin, speak the same thing and agree with God about our sin then he is faithful and just and will forgive our sin and purify us. However, because sin is the root problem of the human condition and needs to be dealt with radically through a proper understanding of confession, the evil one has ensured there are a number of ways to talk about sin that fall very far short of considering its full weight and therefore very far short of proper confession. And if we don't confess our sin properly and completely, then we will never fully experience the forgiveness and the freedom and the wholeness, the shalom peace spoken about in all of the Old Testament that God intends his children to have. That peace that Jesus came to give. My peace I give you. And I want to look with you tonight about five ways in which it's possible for us uh, to confess sin 
that are really fake confessions. Now, we hear a lot about fake news these days. Uh, I'm not here to pass political comment on any of that. But we all know how easy it is to be, to be conned into something, to think something's authentic, to think it's real, when actually it looks real but isn't. And these five areas that we're going to look at tonight are fake confession. And they are confession, they are types of confession that, that con us into thinking that we've really confessed our sins when actually we haven't. And we see the consequences of that as we move through. So here's the first fake confession. Confession as a struggle. Now, this approach to speaking about sin is common in small groups. It's particularly common in house groups, particularly common in youth groups, and particularly common in student groups. Although not confined to those, of course. Sometimes when the discussion moves along, you know, people will start to open up a bit. And they'll say something like, you know, I have a real area of struggle. You recognise that struggle language? I'm struggling. One person will share that they're struggling. They, they may not exactly define that. They'll kind of leave it a bit ambiguous. But they'll be struggling in some area that's respectable enough to share. <laughs> and then another person identifies with the same struggle and pretty soon you have a whole group of people chuckling over shared foibles and faults. Oh, I think I've got that problem too. <laughs> We've all heard that kind of thing. And the most jarring example of this that, that, that I ever really heard was, was actually uh, from Bill Gaither of the Gaither uh, Quartet. When he welcomed back Michael English into the Gaither vocal band after a relatively short period of exile following an, uh, an adulterous affair where Michael English had ruined two marriages, uh, and he, uh, Gaither welcomed him back after a number of months and said, uh, welcome back this rascal. He's had his struggles. Now this view of sin treats offence against God and others more like chewing your nails than a serious soul-destroying plague with real-world and next-world consequences. Sin is named lightly and so barely named at all. Instead, we're lulled into a false sense of security with little urgency about the sickness that's destroying our souls from the inside and our need for God's healing hand upon our souls is minimised our desperate need of healing. This is not biblical confession of sin. This is confession as a struggle. It's fake confession. But there's a second way in which we can talk about sin. That's a fake confession. And that is confession of self-righteousness. This has emerged over the last 20 years or so. And this is, this is linked to the previous notion of confession as a struggle. But this is all about being authentic. We know we're supposed to take sin seriously and not paper over it. But when we hit the cross current of this generation's cult of authenticity and therapeutic self-obsession, our discussions about sin take a different tone. We sit around and confess our sin, sometimes very publicly, but all too often as a way of cutting off criticisms or more radical calls to repentance. 
We've owned up to our messiness. We've fessed up that we've messed up. How cruel would it be if anyone were there to demand more of you than that? You know, well, he, he said he, he, he got that wrong. You know, he, he signalled a virtue. We're all familiar with virtue signalling all over the media these days. Said the right thing. How could we demand more of that individual without becoming a judgmental Pharisee? Or although we share our sins, our motive isn't really genuine. It's not really life-changing. It's not really born out of humility and absolute brokenness before God, but rather becomes a bit of an ironic way of demonstrating how self-righteous and holy we are. Boy, he was really vulnerable, really offended. Willing to appear broken before others, but not really confessing our sin before God. That's not a biblical confession of sin either. Thirdly, we can often think of confession in a sectarian way. Let me explain. Some Christians speak of sin very earnestly and with grave seriousness. Certainly the environment that I grew up in as a young lad up in a gospel hall in Les Mahago did that. Uh, people in that culture never saw a sin or brokenness as a badge of hero heroic authenticity or vulnerability within the church. Instead, sin was something that people out there did. Sin was a problem out there. It marked people outside, not people inside. People inside the church were rarely referred to, if ever, as being sinners. This is a sectarian approach, you see. It involves us speaking of sin as a problem for others out there, who aren't part of our tribe, but rarely of us in here. How dangerous is that? Judgment begins at the house of God, doesn't it? Sin is to be repented of, and its consequences are to be feared, according to this view, but only by them, only by others. After all, sin isn't something that we ourselves would deeply identify with as Christian believers, is it? God forbid. We're past that, if ever we had a problem to begin with. And so we speak of sin only when warning others, never when describing ourselves. So that's not biblical confession of sin either. It's more fake confession. Next, confession can masquerade as socialism. Because you can speak about sin with no reference to God at all. And our culture is very good at doing that. So although sin is identified as being a problem, it's not called sin. It's called something else. It only has an impact horizontally. So we hear talk of human injustices such as sexism, racism, oppression, inequality, greed. These are all sinful behaviours. But they're not identified as sins, you see? Not when we speak about them in that way. Because God is never acknowledged as the primary individual who is sinned against. There's no mention of God here. He's never the real offended party. So any rectification has to take place purely at the horizontal level, purely between humans, at a social level. We're to do justice. 
But without concerning ourselves with confessing to God our offences against his goodness, majesty and holiness that actually leads to our practice of injustice. And this thinking is rife in current emergent theology. There are emergent churches growing up all over uh, the west of Scotland and further afield in the western world. Uh, and they're marked by a lack of rigour around sin and judgement and God's wrath and Christ's substitutionary atonement. These things are all undervalued. And this kind of theology is described by uh, Richard Niebuhr as a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgement through a Christ without a cross. But that's not biblical faith. That's some form of self-help. It's not biblical confession of sin, do you see? It's fake confession, yet again. And finally and fifthly, uh, confession then is sometimes presented in the, in the opposite way, as spirituality. Now this sounds great. If the socialist approach is vertically challenged, this approach is horizontally challenged. It speaks of sin as an offence against God, all right. It, it, it happily says with David, against you and you only have I sinned. But it largely rules out the horizontal dimension. And this approach is rife within evangelical churches. Where we see sin as being against God. But we minimise its impact and its consequences amongst this people and amongst others. We know that sin is supremely against God. We're good, solid evangelicals, of course we know that. But we make the crucial error of thinking that he's not concerned with very much else. So as long as we've prayed, confessed and felt sorry before God as individuals, we've taken sin seriously. But we forget that a true consideration of sin recognises the real harm, the carnage and the hurt our sins wreak in the lives of others, our own families, other families, our neighbours, our friends, and we behave as though the consequences of our sin in the lives and experience of others doesn't matter. As though there are no horizontal consequences at all. This frequently happens in our churches these days when people are, 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 are found to be in some form of moral sin. So we'll restore them. And we'll restore them probably too quickly to ministry without proper attention being given to the carnage that's been left behind at a human level. What about the people that are left here? What reparation is being done towards them? There are horizontal consequences of sin that require to be worked out through processes of church discipline and restoration. And you might remember, of course, that in the Old Testament, I think we spoke about it the last time I was here, David had a real heart to build the temple for God. But that was one task too far for a man who had committed murder to hide his adultery. There are some things you just can't do if there are some things that you just have done. Doesn't mean you can't be restored, doesn't mean you can't be forgiven, but some things just can't be done. So there are horizontal consequences as well as vertical consequences. 
So if it's business as usual because God has forgiven me, that's not biblical confession of sin either. Now that's pretty hard-hitting and pretty negative. Uh, you'll be sitting there thinking, well, there's not enough law left then, David. And that's what this passage has to say to us. There's teaching in here that's radical, that is ignored in our churches, that is glossed over, that is reinterpreted in ways that minimise its impact. And I just want to, for the rest of the time, try to unpack what we ought to be doing in terms of confession, what we ought to be thinking about, where do we go with this? So I want to now talk to you about true confession. We've looked at five fake versions of confession. Let's look at true confession. This passage tells us that just as we speak of the physical sickness of our body to one another openly and freely and pray for one another to be healed, so James says you are to talk about your sin to one another openly and freely and to pray for one another that you may be healed. <coughs> now, I don't know what your prayer meetings are like here in Hamilton Baptist, but sometimes our prayer meetings at Greenview sound a bit like uh, an ICD-10 list of human diseases. We pray for Mrs. So-and-so with a ring-going toenail, and we pray for Mrs. So-and-so with a cancer, and we pray for Mrs. So-and-so with a sore back, and we pray for Mrs. So-and-so because she can't get up and get out, and she's confined to bed, and she's... Now, there is, I'm not parodying that. There's nothing wrong with that. Of course there isn't. But isn't God more concerned with our spiritual well-being than he is with our physical health? Sometimes our, if our prayer meetings reflect what we really value and what really matters to us, then often we're praying for people's physical restoration with no mindset or, or no attention rather being given at all to the spiritual well-being <laughs> of the people of God. What sins need to be confessed at the prayer meeting? What people need to be prayed for because they've, they've sinned and they've struggled and they've, and they've made a mess and they need to be restored spiritually. Not physically. It's not that one is any more or less important than the other here, do you see? They're both important, but we neglect the spiritual dimension of confessional <coughs> prayer. Confession here means a public acknowledgement or confession of sins. That's what the word means here. To confess forth, openly, freely, you're not to call it a struggle, you're to call it a sin. You're not to feel self-righteous, you are to feel the shame. You're not to say it's present in others, you're to say it's present in you. You're not to say it's only human injustice, you're to say it's an offence against God's holiness. You're not to say you've taken sin seriously by confessing it to God without humbly acknowledging that you require to live with the consequences and to work to make them right. <coughs> These ways of speaking about sin, fake confession of sin, minimise, distort and insulate us from recognising sin's widespread and toxic effects. Most importantly though, they rob us of a clear knowledge of all the ways that we need a saviour. Can you see when you view sin the way we've just described it? As shameful, 
as present in you, as an offence against God's holiness, as having consequences within the congregation and within the community. Do you see when you start to think about it in that way and name it in that way, you start to feel the weight of it? And you cr- you're, you're crushed by it and you cry out to God to be rid of it, to be done with it. I don't want to be going there anymore. When we deny the serious consequences of our sins, we miss out on experiencing the fullness that James speaks about here of spiritual (laughs) healing. We end up with a smaller and limited view of our complete and absolute need of Christ. When we wear our sin as a badge of authenticity, we lose the opportunity to derive our true identity in him. When we act like sin is something those people struggle with over there, we forfeit the joy of knowing in our own lives God's gracious mercy has been lavished even on somebody like me. Because I'm not that different from them. When we fail to see that our sins alienate us not just from our neighbours, but also from a holy God, we fail to honour him and cut ourselves off from his peace that empowers our work to make things right with others. And when we fail to realise how deeply sin harms our neighbours and our friends and our brothers and sisters as well, we neglect laying hold on the fullness of reconciliation that God plans and enjoys and, and, and intends for his children who have been forgiven. So let's not fool ourselves then with this empty, fake confession of sin. Instead, Let's try to take hold of the real thing. So what does it look like, this true confession? Well, the first thing I want to show you from the passage here is that this true confession of sin is shared. It's mutual. In his book, Life Together, the 20th century German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer discusses the spiritual discipline of mutual confession anchored here in James 5.16. And Bonhoeffer argues that men and women living in true koinonia, that's the Greek word for Christian fellowship, true Christian community. He argues that men and women living in true Christian community confess their sin to a brother or sister in Christ. Now we're not talking about Roman Catholic confession to a priest. We're talking about mutual confession between Brothers and sisters, confess your sins, what does James say, to one another. It's not that one confesses to the other and the other doesn't confess back, you see. That's power. That's a power play. This is mutual confession. Here's what he writes. Christ became our brother in order to help us. Through him, our brother has become Christ for us in the power and authority of the commission Christ has given to him. Our brother or sister stands before us as as the sign of the truth and grace of God. He or she has been given to us to help us. He or she hears the confession of our sins in Christ's stead. And he or she forgives our sins in Christ's name and keeps the secret of our confessions as God keeps it. When I go to my brother to confess, I am going to God. He is as Christ to me. We are as Christ to one another in this regard. Mm -hmm. 
before you brand me a heretic, think this through. With mutual confession, the response is emphatic and mutual forgiveness. Having a fellow brother in Christ pronounce forgiveness over you becomes like a wave of freedom. He or she is not giving you forgiveness. He or she is reminding you that by having confessed your sins in that way and asked for God's forgiveness, you have been forgiven. They are affirming to you the forgiveness that God has granted you. And that is something you need to hear. It's something I need to hear. And it's like a wave of freedom breaking over your, your life. I, I, I've been in situations like this, personally. Having sinned in a way that required a great deal of heart searching and soul searching and, for, and, and confession. And to confess it to a brother in Christ and to just get it out there. All of it. What a relief to hear that brother saying, if we confess our sins, David, he's faithful and just and forgives. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Can you believe that? No, can't believe that. Does it feel like that? No, it doesn't feel like that. It's important for someone to bring that forgiveness, that word of forgiveness to you. Do you see? Being the one to pronounce that forgiveness over a fellow believer reminds you of your own spiritual transformation. You're not standing in judgment above this, brother. You're broken and sinful with him. One broken sinner pronouncing and reassuring God's forgiveness on another broken sinner. What a remarkable thing the grace of God is. Is that not what Jesus meant when he when he mentions that difficult passage in John 20, if you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. That mutual confession, do you see, becomes an opportunity for active obedience to God and mutual accountability. So, confession is mutual. True confession is shameful. That's why we don't want to do it. That's why we shy away from it. It's painful. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. But mutual confession becomes the framework within which we experience the tension of law and grace as Christians. It properly aligns grace as the basis for our obedience. So, I find a brother I trust. Here's how it works in practice. I find a brother I trust. Someone with whom I have a shared history. Someone who loves me in Christ and whom I love in Christ. And I become vulnerable. And when I sit down to confess my sins with a brother, my cup is full of coffee, but my heart is full of shame. And when you get into this kind of relationship, you can barely eke out your secrets. You want to hold them back. But your confession doesn't pour into an empty room. A pair of eyes stare back at you. A set of ears listens to your most dreadful secrets. You've been masquerading and moonlighting as a sinner when in fact you're a child of God. What on earth are you doing? 
and you're about to reveal your secrets to your brother in Christ and naturally, naturally you brace yourself for the word of condemnation, don't you? That's terrible. How on earth could you ever have done something like that? You brace yourself for the word of condemnation and judgment. And that's what you deserve. Then all of a sudden, your brother reminds you, because of Christ's work on the cross, because of his resurrection, you are forgiven and free from sin. Through Christ's death and resurrection, God says, God says you're forgiven. Your brother echoes the word of God to you and you are flabbergasted by the grace of God. Every time those words, words roll off his tongue, you're forgiven, David. You're forgiven. And then it's your turn. Remember, confess to one another. And all that you've just experienced of that grace and forgiveness, you're able to share back. Now, we're a bit far short of that in the west of Scotland, are we not? Mutual confession provides an opportunity to dynamically experience the forgiveness of God. The kind of confession, that mutual confession that I, I commend to you tonight via Bonhoeffer, it's not a new kind of pious law bound up in unbiblical notions of penance and priestly intercession. It's not about that at all. Rather, it's a liberating and properly accountable way to live humble, grace-filled lives that we have lost. We've lost this in the church. And we silently suffer and fear the dread of condemnation on a future day when we should be confessing our sins now in order to hear the word of the future brought into the present. You're forgiven. Now go and live as though you're forgiven. And we'll meet next week and see how we've been getting on. So the issue is a simple one. Yet, yeah, like most simple issues, it's massively challenging. Are you willing and ready to look a fellow Christian in the eye and confess your gravest and secret, your gravest secrets and darkest sins? Are you prepared to do that? Are you ready to hear you are forgiven? Because says James, then and only then will you fully experience spiritual healing and peace. What the world out there is looking for in the Christian community these days isn't a tarted up version of its own culture. It's looking for something that is fundamentally radically different. Radically different. This is radically different. Because when you do that, says James, then and only then will you fully experience spiritual healing and peace. That shalom that we mentioned earlier, that saving wholeness that all of us so desperately crave. How much guilt is being carried around by Christians too afraid to confess and instead play the hypocrite? Feel they've got to keep that facade up. How much pain is endured because you think you're the only sinner in the meeting? The only sinner in the church here tonight? I, I, no, nobody would believe it. Nobody would believe that about me. I, nobody's anywhere near where I am. How disabled is your Christian life because you're afraid that when the pronouncement comes at the end of your life, somehow when all of these secrets are revealed, you might not pass the test. How many of us are living there? The 
There's an old hymn, isn't there? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything, everything to God in prayer. Even those dark secrets. See, we don't live in isolation. We're part of the body of Christ. That's what it means to be a radically different countercultural community. We experience the same forgiveness. We have the same hope, the same freedom from guilt. But we only share them fully when we speak out our sins openly and honestly and fully to one another. And we see the depth and the glory of the, of the forgiveness and grace of God. When we repent of them, when we turn away from them, when we never want to speak of them again next month. Do you see? Because when you speak of these things, the shame and the, the horror of them become real when they're named. You don't want to have to go back to your meeting with your friend next month and, and, and say the same thing again. You want to turn away from that. And experience the healing of your soul. Has it ever occurred to you that this is what will happen when you face your sins on the final day? And we will be made to face them, all of us. Every one of them. We'll be made to confess them. To speak them out. As we do so, then to cast ourselves on the grace of God and wait to hear the full pronouncement of forgiveness by the Lord Jesus himself. Is that not a future hope? But so gracious is God and so knowing of our weakness and our anxieties and our fears about those future days, so gracious is he, that he enables us to hear that final day word of forgiveness today. <coughs> he allows us to hear that today. And where does he allow us to hear it from? One another. As we confess our sins to one another, we hear the words of Christ echo from the lips of our brothers and sisters. All your darkest sins are atoned for. Now, go and serve me from this day.